And I think there are places in the film, and in fact, I have some acquaintances who know more about the Empress than, than I do. And they all said that, well, it's more or less true to her life, but it's sometimes a bit exaggerated or distorted this way and that. And I think for the sake of the thematic argument, the film occasionally, admittedly, takes some liberties. And, you know, I'm with it as a viewer, but I realize that it's starting to veer or pull away a bit from the actual facts of, of the Empress's life. And it has statements to make, right, and kind of agenda to push. And maybe it pushes a little beyond what, what the actual life contained. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Corsage and St. Omer, and starting with Corsage. Now, Mike, this is about the Empress Elizabeth of Austria, who I didn't know anything about before this movie. But after I watched it, I felt like I really needed to know a whole lot more. So I found a uh, mini series on Netflix called The Empress, and I started to read a book about her sort of fictionalized version of her life. What an interesting character. Where do you want to start with Corsage? Well, let's start historically, because the Empress Elizabeth of Austria, who was also the Queen of Hungary, I want to give her all of her titles. One of the curious things is she is very well known in Europe to this day. She's a, a celebrated royal figure, and so people would be familiar with her. She's not well known at all in the United States. And so your response is our typical response, that we don't know that much about her. When you watch this movie, Corsage, it's a very fictionalized treatment, and we can go into some of the details of where it veers from the actual life. And yet, you know, this is a figure who is fascinating. You know, she's living in the late 19th century when the Austro-Hungarian Empire is still there. There's some signs that it might be weakening, but it's still very much there. And uh, she's married to the emperor, Franz Joseph. And it's very much a film about a woman who, you know, in the face of it, not only has a, a beautiful face, but she has so much power through the husband. And on her own, she doesn't, but through the husband. And, you know, she has a pampered life. And yet this is truly a case of, you know, living in, in a gilded cage because the title, of course, is Corsage. Now, we tend to think of it in terms of something you would wear, you know, as you go off to the prom. But another meaning of the word and a valid one is the, the bodice for, for dress. So, Think in terms of, you know, a corset, uh, you know, a cosseted or a corseted life, if you will. This is an image that is oftentimes used when we talk about women in that Victorian era in terms of, you know, particularly middle class, upper middle class, or in her case, royal, that they, they are constricted, they're confined. And there are a lot of scenes in the film where, you know, you see her in, in close up, you know, being put into this. She has a wasp waist. And, you know, and, and so you see her being put into this and it's being stitched up and you think, what kind of confinement? It's like imprisonment within this. So, you know, metaphorically, that that runs throughout the film. And it's one reason why she's been an enduring figure in European culture, because you see her as a woman who has, when I say has everything, I just mean she's living in the palace, right? She's got servants. She's got, you know, she doesn't have to do anything, really. She, she, she's got all sorts of ceremonies to attend, but, you know, she's got a, a pampered life. But, you know, that's not exactly a happy life for her because she does have other interests or she wants to express herself and she can't. I mean, she is very much a woman who is confined this way. And so when Marie mentioned, you know, familiarity with her through movies, the first movie about her was made as far back as 1921. And then in the 1950s, there were uh, there's a trio of movies 
German language with, with Romy Schneider in that role. And then there have been other treatments of her cinematically, including the Netflix series that you're referring to. So you can see that she's had that this enduring interest for filmmakers and in Europe, a natural audience for it. And one of the things that's good about this film is the fact that it makes her more familiar, I would say, to um, American moviegoers. And as you watch her in the film, you start to feel for her character because, you know, so much of her importance within the court is the fact that she's the much younger wife. And, and of course, she's, you know, has had children. And so, you know, you're going to have heirs to the throne and all that. But it's all about appearance. It's all about the surface. She's going to have that corset on. She'll look beautiful in her gowns. She's expected to act properly. And at ceremonies, I mean, you know, they're all the things you are scripted to say, right? You don't really express yourself. It's, it's a theatrical pageant, if you will. And so one of the crucial scenes in the film is, is when she's um, turning 40 and she has her birthday party. She is not a happy birthday girl. Uh, you know, she's, she's heading into middle age and at the table when she's expected to blow out the candles and say the appropriate things, what she actually says uh, of herself is at that age, 40, this is an exact quote, a person begins to disperse and fade. And she sees that, you know, and they all tell her, oh, keep your beauty forever. And she knows that she's at the age where she might start to lose her beauty. And within the confines of that society, what does she have to look forward to? And, and you can see how really in many ways she wants to break away from that. And so the film really sort of, you know, it's a prototypical feminist statement. And that's one reason why that image of the corset is, is uh, you know, the operating metaphor here. Well, she was apparently a celebrated beauty and like you said people in europe knew who she was they certainly knew who she was back in the day and i looked up some interviews with the director uh, marie kreutzer and she had a lot of interesting things to say about why she made this movie the way she did and you're right the idea of the corset and she said she decided to call it corsage because it was a prettier word she said she wanted to put across this idea that this woman was living in a cage laced up every day and i wrote down some of the details because i think that they're fascinating she had hair that reached all the way to the floor and would spend not personally i mean she would just be sitting there somebody would spend two or three hours doing her hair every day you know it sounds like actors who are in you know important roles where they have to wear a lot of makeup and prosthetics and stuff where you're in the chair you know, being prepped for your role. But that's just for a temporary time. I mean, this would be a daily occasion. Also, she was laced into these uh, corsets so that her waist was 16 inches around. I mean, it's just, it's it's mind-boggling. And then, of course, later when she was heavier, her waist was as big as 18 inches, which I believe was the circumference of Scarlett O'Hara's waist, if I remember, gone with the wind correctly. She would have her hair washed in eggs and cognac, which I don't know what that does for your hair. It just seems like you would just just bring me eggs and cognac while I'm sitting in that chair. I mean, somebody do all that braiding and things that they did to her hair. She would sometimes need to be sewn into her dresses, you know, to make them tight enough. And then in terms of the corset itself, she was using one that was more constrictive than most women wore at the time. She would have these leather front ones sent to her from France, and they would be laced up so tightly that they only lasted a couple of weeks before they, you know, actually, you know, kind of gave up the ghost. So, you know, there was just an amazing amount of reining in, which is also an interesting thing, and in that she was apparently a very accomplished horse 
horseback rider, but riding side saddle, which, you know, watching it, just so many interesting facts about, you know, what it was like to be her. Now, the director was saying that she got the idea of developing this idea, reading all of this coverage of Meghan Markle. And she said that the idea of celebrity royals goes all the way back to this woman, that a lot of the things that they said and discussed about her is the exact same stuff that happens today with Meghan Markle. Well, it's interesting that you you mentioned those details because that's actually where the film is most successful. Her daily routine, you know, being put into the course and having her hair done that way. It's all about presentation. It's all about the the surface appearance. So imagine how this woman, the real woman, must have felt about this. Now, the actress playing her, Vicki Christ, you know, had to wear that corset, she says, 14 hours a day. So you know how grueling it can be to make a film. Imagine having to wear that 14 hours a day while you're shooting it. You're sitting in your dressing room waiting for your scene, and you're you're already corseted and uncomfortable. And here's an exact quote from the actress as to how she felt about that. She says, quote, it's torture. It cuts you in half. No man would ever wear one for even five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That says it all right there. (laughs) And you know that is so true. Well, you know, Marie, though, we should talk. I don't want to spoil anything in the film because I'm not going to give away the ending of the film, like what happens to the the empress in, in the film. I'll just say this, that the ending of the film is very different from the actual ending of of her life. And again, I'll just leave, you know, let viewers discover what the end of the film is. But in terms of the actual life, the Empress Elizabeth of Austria and Queen of Hungary was actually assassinated. She was killed by an Italian anarchist in Switzerland in 1898. That's the actual kind of arbitrary end, right? It just, you know, just there it was. It happened. Without spoiling the end of the film, it's treated in a more symbolic way. And again, you know, we think about that central metaphor of a corseted woman who wants to, in some ways, you know, express herself, and yet she's constricted by society. And I think there are places in the film, and in fact, I have some acquaintances who know more about the Empress than than I do, and they all said that, well, it's more or less true to her life, that it's sometimes a bit exaggerated or distorted this way and that. And I think for the sake of the thematic argument, the film occasionally, admittedly, takes some liberties and, you know, I'm with it as a viewer, but I realize that it's starting to veer or pull away a bit from the actual facts of, of the Empress's life. And it has statements to make, right, and kind of agenda to push. And maybe it pushes a little beyond what, what the actual life contained. From your own research, what's your sense of that? I would agree. I think what is overarching in, in everything else that you read about her is her domineering mother-in-law really kind of overshadowed everything that happened in her life. When her daughter was born, the mother-in-law kind of took over, named her after herself, and wouldn't even let Elizabeth raise the child. Then she did the same thing with the son that came afterwards. She named him, she raised him, and Elizabeth was sort of cut off from her own children. It wasn't until she had her fourth child that she was able to actually devote her maternal instincts to one of her children at last. It's one of those kinds of sub stories that really gives you the sense of what you're describing, Mike, this sort of stultifying atmosphere where not only is so much of your time given to appearances, literally, and, you know, keeping up appearances, it really doesn't even give you the chance to do things that most people take for granted. There's also a lot of scenes because it's about her turning 40 and her being concerned about getting older about getting heavier, 
And so you see like these incredibly tiny little plates of food that she barely touches, which apparently scans. That's how she was. She was very, very restrictive in, in what she would agree to eat. Always very, very concerned about her size. And apparently she was 5'8", and at one point, 95 pounds. So she was just very, very stringently trying to control that process of aging. And as we know, that is a losing game. Well, you know, in some ways, as you indicate, the film is really true to the life. And again, the details are fascinating. In other ways, the film pushes beyond what the actual case was, because it has points to make that way. And there are some deliberate anachronisms in the film. I mean, really deliberate. For instance, the, the two that made me smile and even laugh out loud Musically, you will hear the Rolling Stones as tears go by and Chris Christopherson's Help Me Make It Through the Night. And you're thinking, what? We're in Vienna in the late 19th century. And it's borderline ridiculous, I know, but the film is trying to... Now, to me, it's irksome. I'll tell you why. I can make connections between life then and life now. I don't need somebody to give me a contemporary you know, song to remind me that, well, here were the issues in the 1880s and, and now here we are today. And OK, I can do that. I don't need the nudge of, of you know, pop music from from our own era. And yet the film does that in a lot of ways. It just toys with it. And a friend of mine, we presented the film at Cinema Sundays at the Charles and the observation was made that, well, you know, if you're going to do that, really go all in with it. And the idea here is this is what's known generically as what's called punky history or, or the punk historical. Like take it and dress it up in period garb, but then have some very contemporary things tossed in as well. The point being made was if you're going to go in, go all in. Here the film just has two or three scenes where it's distracting to do that. But why not then do Marie Antoinette in 2006 or, or The Favor 2018? In other words, films like just wh whether you like it or not, at least it's consistent, right? It's just going to consistently give you contemporary touches to an otherwise period piece. And I could see the logic of that in terms of how to handle it cinematically. There are some other places where it's just kind of puzzling. And again, where the film is just pushing things for its own reasons. There's the wonderfully enigmatic figure, Louis Le Prince, who was a, an actual historical figure and one of the great mysteries in film history. You know, we all talk about Edison and, and William Dixon inventing film in 1889. Le Prince was working on the same path in the late 1880s. And then he gets on a train and disappears from history. He and his invention just totally gone. We will never know probably what happened to him. Was it murder? Was it suicide? Some people even ridiculously have said maybe Edison had him killed as a rival. <laughs> I know. It's just like, like, you know, like <laughs> fill in the blank, your imagination, fill it in. But anyway, he's an actual figure, but he was doing this work in the late 1880s, inventing what would become cinema, and then he disappears. In the film, he's presented doing this in 1878. He's showing his movies to and making movies of the Empress easily 10 years earlier than he actually did it. Why would they do that? Well, thematically, I can see the point. It's all about presentation of image. And here's a, a, you know, a nascent filmmaker showing her her own image. OK, I can track all that. And we actually see the films, don't we? The films within the film that he's shooting. And yet, you know, can you trust this film as biography? In terms of her actual life, it takes liberties. In terms of film history, it definitely does. Because 10 years is a lot of time when you're talking about early film history. What was being done in the late 1880s was not being done 10 years earlier. And so that's why if you're watching the film, you have to be cautious, you have to be careful, like not just to simply accept everything at face value, because sometimes the film does veer from known and provable historical facts. One of the examples of the anachronisms is the poster that they had up when I went 
to the movies, which is her in profile, flipping the bird at the camera. And it's a nicely gloved hand flipping the bird. But nevertheless, I mean, the actual person would never have done such a thing. But it, she does just... it in the one scene, Marie. There, there's the oh, one but scene. I know, but, but the real person. No, the no, real but, see, but the point I'm making is it's the poster image, yes, which is meant to pull in a contemporary audience, but it's one of the anachronisms in the film that's kind of irksome, namely that, you know, okay, you can understand that when you're at the dinner table, all the protocol of dinner service, and she gets up to leave, and when she gives the finger to the other people at the table, my reaction was, oh, come on, oh, bro, give me a break. You, you know, like, I didn't find it amusing, and I just thought this is an anachronism where, you know, she would express her disdain or her boredom, but, you know, Marie, she would not I don't, I don't know if the gesture was even being used, but even if it was, she would not do that. I mean, did you feel like I did that it was kind of like a cheap shot, basically, to do that? It just was too blatant, it too anachronistic. But I think the idea was to give us her as if she was a contemporary woman, that maybe she would. But to be honest, I can't imagine Meghan Markle flipping anybody the bird. So, yeah, I don't know that it's meant to make her seem like a, a rebel. Well, it's meant to make her seem like a modern a modern woman, basically, that she doesn't want the confinement of the course, that she's going to break out of it and protest and so on. And again, thematically, I, I can see that agenda and I can agree with it in a kind of hopeful way. But then you have to double back on the actual life of the empress, right? As you and I are agreeing, she would not have done that. I mean, it's just, it's just really out of character, even out of rebellious character, right? She might have other ways of expressing it, but I, I think to me, it's sort of a cheap shot. It's It's kind of you know, hitting the obvious note and then really hitting it. Now, in terms of film history and real life events sort of folding into the story, the real life story of the Empress and Queen, there's a wonderful series on Netflix called Bonfire of Destiny, which is about a fire in 1897 that happened in Paris when they were demonstrating film. And many people died, including the Empress's sister, Sophie. So yeah, she was kind of there for most of the beginning of film, but not like it's shown in, in the movie we're talking about. Mike, I have to ask you, when you were watching it, was it distracting at all to you how much the actor looked like Meryl Streep? Well, I thought about it, and, and I wasn't bothered by it, but the thought occurred to me, yeah, that, that um, it may just simply be the physical resemblance that, and, and this is an actress who's best known probably for Phantom Thread, you know, mm -hmm. to, to American audiences. And there's definitely a physical resemblance. Now, as to whether they were really trying to emphasize that, I can't say, but it, it, it was definitely there. And in fact, you could see this as, as, as a role that Meryl Streep certainly would have owned, right? She really would have had this role. So I, I would think any number of actors would love to play a role like that. I mean, it's really a delicious role for an actor. Now, is this the entry from Austria for Best Foreign Film, Mike? I'd have to check, Marie. I don't know. If it is, do you think it has a shot? Possibly. I mean, it has, you know, it has a lot of, speaking of surface, a lot of surface appeal. It has a compelling biography, whether it's accurate or not is another matter, but it's got a compelling biography there. I mean, there, there are some selling points for it that way. So I think it'll it'll get some recognition. I think it, it might, if not, you know, prevail in that category of best international film. Certainly has a shot with the costumes and makeup and hair. Yes, in those categories, <laughs> they spent a lot of time putting on, on the, the corset, a lot of time doing the hair. I can vouch for that because I watched the movie. <laughs> so let's move on to Saint-Omer, which is actually the entry for France for Best Foreign Film. And this is based on a true story about a woman who drowns her child and in the ensuing court case, blames witchcraft 
for this happening. Now, when the trial was actually happening, the real one, the director for this movie, Alice Diop, went there. She actually was present for the trial, much like the character of Rayma we have here, who is a college professor and writer who is fascinated by the case because she, like the accused, is a woman of Senegalese descent with a sort of withholding mother. And the director said while she was sitting in the courtroom that there was a palpable sense around her of other women who, like her, were experiencing something that was kind of going beyond what was being presented by the uh, magisters that was just very personal. And she felt that she really wanted to bring that to the screen. Now, that was the intent, Mike. How well do you think she succeeded? I think she did, actually. The actual case was 2013. This woman, you know, killed her child. I mean, such a rare crime. And we have to trace her background a bit here, because think about going way back, you know, with the French colonies in West Africa, and think of that Francophone culture that develops in places like Senegal. And so our, our character is from Dakar, Senegal. And, and so the reason we have to focus on that is she is from Senegal. She's come to France. There are longstanding cultural and political ties, obviously, between those former colonies and France. In fact, having taught a course in African cinema, we, we watched Francophone films from countries like Senegal. So it's it's there, right? But one of the one of the themes in, in films like that oftentimes is what is it like to be from one culture and go to the other, or in a sense to share two cultures, you know? And this is where it plays out. In, in the courtroom in a really fascinating way, I think. So when the filmmaker, Alice Diop, as Marie says, went to the actual trial in 2016, she was not intending to make a film at that point. She, was, she found it a compelling case. She wanted to be a court watcher that way. Her background as a filmmaker was entirely in documentary film. And that shows in the film we're watching. This is her first feature film. It's very much a feature film, and yet much of the strength of it is that documentary verisimilitude. And even though there's a lot of talk in this film, because after all, it's court, almost the whole film takes place in the courtroom, so it's a lot of testimony. By the same token, where it's really compelling is actually when they're not talking sometimes. It's what I call observational cinema. You will have a shot that lasts for 10 or 20 seconds just of somebody's face. It could be the woman who's, you know, standing charges of murder, anyone else in court, the judge, the spectators, and so on. And it's really quite, you know, compelling, as I say that way. But the actual case, this woman had come to France, and this is the character, and it's a lightly fictionalized treatment of the actual case. So she's in France, and she's a former philosophy student. She's fascinated by philosophy, and she wants to pursue that. The court watcher that we spend some time with, Rama, has been a success story. She's a college professor. She's a novelist. She's made that, should I call it a transition? She's made it in French society that way. She's watching this case. She's, in some ways, she's an audience surrogate, you know, that we're watching and she's watching. We're watching her as she watches. Now, the, the, the case that's being watched, the woman who's standing trial, she left her child on a beach, 15-month-old infant on a beach, knowing the tide would come in and carried away. And she has done this. And the th here's where it's an interesting case. Number one, because it's so rare, obviously, that kind of infanticide, how rare it is to have a mother kill her own child, just how heartbreaking, obviously, that, that would be for, for just to, to watch this. But the fact that what makes it even more unusual is in court, 
the woman not only does not deny, she, she immediately announces that she's guilty. And moreover, making it even more rare, she wants to know herself why she did it. She says that in court, that I hope as this trial goes on, I will discover, I'll learn why I did it. Oftentimes, she can't even quite, you know, say or try to verbalize that. And yet this is where it's observational cinema. One of the philosophers she mentions is Wittgenstein, who said, and this is in the film, Wittgenstein said, whereof we cannot speak, thereof must we be silent, where we're just bearing witness that way. Now, when that Wittgenstein connection is made, you know, that philosopher is made in court, this is where the systemic racism of French society comes to the foreground, because one of the college professors who's a witness there more or less says, well, she's a black woman from Senegal. You know, she's here in France. Why is she studying French and German philosophy? Why doesn't she study something that's more natural for her? That's actually said in courtroom testimony. And that's where the theater audience, I watched it with went silent. It's like everyone realized is if they're telling her because you're a black woman from Senegal, this is inappropriate somehow that you would study European philosophers. And it hits with a wallop. It really does. You realize how the whole court system has this kind of built in racism. So what's really on trial here? What's interesting about the film is, yes, the woman's on trial, but isn't the court system itself on trial for how it treats her? Now, I will say I thought this was beautifully shot. And one of the contrasts I really thought was effective was that the woman on trial is depicted in all of these different colors of brown against a brown background. So she almost fades into the background where the woman watching from you know, the courtroom is wearing vibrant colors. So there's a real difference between the way the two of them are presented, which I think is very effective. I do think, though, one flaw about the movie is it does linger on their faces, and it lingers on a lot of shots for just a couple of beats too long, in my opinion. Sometimes I think it's meant to be unsettling and meant to make you listen and understand. But I think it's, it's used so much that I found it noticeable and I thought that was one criticism I would have made, I would make up this film. That's always an, a consideration with observational cinema. How long should you hold the shot? And I think you raise a valid point. Like, you know, should you hold it another beat, an, another few seconds? Because a few seconds is a lot of time screen-wise. And so you, you raise a good point. The film does occasionally linger that way. And I'm not sure we're getting gleaning more information, but I actually liked it for that reason, the fact that it would linger and just to look at the face and to try to understand the psychology of it. How could she do this? Why would she do this? And that's where I don't mind having the shot held a few seconds longer. But I understand completely what you're saying, because it does tend to linger. The other thing I noticed was that both of the female leads had the most beautiful, luminous skin. So when it would focus on them individually for a long period of time, you found yourself just marveling at just the beauty of, I mean, they could both do skincare commercials, but it, it gives you the sense of the smoothness sort of belying the turmoil underneath. I thought juxtaposition of those two things was very effective. Well, you know, Marie, the film deliberately draws parallels between these two women. The success story, you know, they're sitting in the courtroom watching, you know, a college professor, a novelist, this and that, but she's also pregnant and she's, you know, facing motherhood herself and she's faced racism in various ways. And so the two women in many ways have a lot in common, you know, in terms of a, a similar background. And, and the film, I think, very astutely draws parallels between the two. What was the audience reaction when you watched it, Mike? I think people were really quiet and, and observational. I think the film really works. It really does pull you into, into the court case. And you really find yourself as a spectator, as you would be in, in the courtroom. And again, I think the film really is quite strong that way. Well, we'll see how it does with the 
best international film category. Might do off. Hope it does well. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.poddean.com. Also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.